Good morning. This is John Richardson speaking with you from Toronto, Canada. It's early in the morning for me, but late in the day, actually, for Virginia Latora Jeeker, based in Dubai. But on Thursdays, her weekly blog post comes out, and today was an exceptionally interesting one. So when I woke up, I thought, my God, I've got to contact Virginia to talk about this immediately. This is such an interesting post. So welcome, Virginia. How are you today? Hi, John. Always good to talk to you. I'm doing great and looking forward to discussing this interesting case. So my first question for you is, is it, is it sunny there? Is it light outside right at this time? Oh, yes. The sun is shining. I think our temperature today was about 85 Fahrenheit. Okay. Well, it's very bright here, too. This is later than we usually do our podcast. So we both have sunshine. Okay. Anyway, so this post that came out today and on your blog is, frankly, one of the most interesting posts I've seen on any tax blog for a long time because of the number of issues that it seems to revolve around. So I want to begin with the title. Title is called The Perfect Storm, <clears throat> U.S. Tax, Community Property, and the Mobile International Couple. Now, that's three things. And the phrase, you know, we know the phrase, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. I think I would begin by saying, again, this is an example of the pure hell being greater than the sum of the individual parts. Would you agree with that? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, why don't we begin with just a basic summary of the facts, okay, to set the context without getting into what the, the issues are. So what's the story here? If this were a good night story to a three-year-old, once upon a time, there was a... Once upon a time, there was a couple who were both UK nationals. Neither person was a US citizen or US resident. In the 1970s, this lovely couple was exiled from Uganda and they moved to Belgium. Belgium has a community property regime. This lovely couple had invested in US stocks and the stocks were held in the husband's name, Citigroup stock, which unfortunately they were worth a lot of money when this gentleman passed away and the 250,000 shares of Citigroup stock that were held in his name were assessed as part of his U.S. estate and yielded an estate tax of U.S. dollars, $2 million. Oh, it's actually over $2 million. And the Internal Revenue Service wants its money. Now, this poor, lovely widow said, whoa, wait a minute. Why do we have to pay estate tax on this? And that's where the story gets really interesting. Virginia, I've got to ask you a question before we get into the nitty gritty. Did they or did they not live happily ever after? I'm afraid they did not live happily ever after. That is the truth. Okay, so this is this is very interesting, and there's a number of issues that it raises. So the first is, I think, a really, really stark reminder 
that if a non-resident alien, or actually, if a, a person who's not a U.S. citizen and not domiciled in the United States dies with U.S. CITES assets, an estate tax is going to be imposed on those assets. Is that a correct summary? That's absolutely correct. And unfortunately, foreign people, as you described, they are not U.S. citizens, nor are they domiciled in the United States. And domicile means more than, for example, having a green card. So someone might have a green card and think, oh, that's not me. I'm domiciled in the U.S. because I have a green card. Not true. Domicile looks at the physical location of this person and his intent to remain in that location permanently. So it's a, a combination of physical physical presence and the intent of the person is that their is that their home is that where they are living you know as their permanent place. So, so would it be fair to say that not have that we had people who were not citizens and they were not domiciled. And okay. what that means is their US situs assets such as stock in a US corporation or U.S. real property, any physical assets located in the United States, like artwork, for example, all of these things can be taxed in their U.S. estate upon death of the owner. And they do not get a big exemption amount. People often think, well, there's a $12.9 million exemption amount for assets in the estate. That's true for U.S. citizens. And foreign people who are domiciled in the United States because the estate tax is assessed on their worldwide assets. But for people who are not domiciled or not U.S. citizens, they have only a $60,000 exemption amount. All right. So this is this is really amazing stuff. Now, you know, we've talked um about renunciation of U.S. citizenship and that sort of thing, I think it's worth pointing out that uh, for U.S. citizens with high dollar amounts of U.S. CITES assets, if they renounce U.S. citizenship and leave those assets in the United States, it seems to me they're opening the door to a significant estate tax. Would you agree? Absolutely. And unfortunately, many people forget that. Or never knew Many it. Many people forget that. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. So, I mean, just to generalize here, one of the issues on renunciation, I think, is always what's your financial relationship to the United States. And uh, that's more than income streams, right? That's very clearly assets, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to extend too far into this in this podcast, but I wonder if you briefly comment at least about the existence of the possibility of using a blocker mechanism to shield those assets from the U.S. estate tax. Right. Well, essentially, when you're using a blocker mechanism, let's say that would be a foreign corporation, so something that is not a U.S. entity. Um, if the person puts the U.S. situs assets, let's be simple and take this example from the, the case here, a state of Charania, where they had U.S. stocks in Citigroup. So if they had put those stocks into a foreign corporate entity that was owned by the, the husband who, who later passed away, when he died, he would not have died owning U.S. Citus Citigroup stock. When he died, he would have owned stock in this foreign corporation that he had created. Let's 
say, for example, he created uh, a United Arab Emirates free zone entity to hold these shares, for example. So when he dies owning foreign stock, the U.S. has no, no estate tax to assess because he did not own the U.S. stocks. Um, these kind of blocker mechanisms are fairly easy to set up, but of course, you know, they're going to have their own little complications. You've got to manage making sure that this foreign corporation is going to be treated as a corporate entity from a U.S. tax perspective. You don't want it to be viewed from a U.S. perspective as a look-through entity, because then that's not going to help you. You will die owning the assets that you think are sitting in this entity, but the U.S. tax system treats them as, as a a look through and therefore treating them as if they are owned by the individual. And you've got the whatever annual fees to pay to maintain the corporate entity and so forth and whatever requirements are imposed in that jurisdiction for filings, etc. Okay, so bottom line, if the non-domiciliary owns the U.S. site as assets, they're going to be taxed heavily on anything above $60,000 but it is possible to have the assets owned by some kind of a foreign entity to avoid that. However, owning the foreign entity comes with its own administrative compliance issues. Fair summary? Very good summary. That's right. Okay. But I would say to you, depending on the size of the assets in question, the value of the assets in question, this was a $2 million estate tax bill. I think no matter what, had they a blocker in place, no matter what the minor inconveniences and administrative tasks may have been, it would have been worthwhile to avoid this two million. Oh, and that there's no question in this case, no question in this case. Yeah, or right. of course, avoid the U.S. side as assets. Okay, so that's the first, I think, important point that needs to be made is why did this whole issue arise, okay? Now, the second issue is really has to do with uh, that under the U.S. law, right, this is really an issue of property ownership, U.S. law will defer to the foreign jurisdiction as a general principle to decide what the ownership is, who owns what, agreed? Yes, yes. Okay. So in this particular case, if I'm understanding you correctly, the determination was that the husband who died actually owned all the shares, correct? Even though the view of the couple was that the widow owned half. Is that correct? That's right. And let's look at why did the widow think she owned half? She thought she owned half because they were living in Belgium. That was the, the place of their marital domicile. And Belgium has a community property jurisdiction. It's a community property jurisdiction. So she felt that under the community property rules, she was actually a half owner of those shares in city Citigroup. Okay, so she's sitting in Belgium and she's saying, well, look, I, we're, li we're living here in Belgium. I'm sitting in Belgium. Therefore, Belgium law should determine uh, who owns these shares, correct? That's right. That's right. And and by the way, she says, I've been living in Belgium with my husband since 1972. It's not like we just moved here. Okay. So then apparently what happened in this case was that the legal result was 
that in fact the widow did not own half the shares. That's right. Now, can you take me through how that could have happened? Okay, well, the court was looking at a complicated fact pattern. So we had a couple that were UK nationals, but they had their marital domicile in Belgium. The original marital domicile had been in Uganda. Remember, they were exiled from Uganda. So what, what the court looked at was, well, what would, what would the Belgian court do to determine who owns what here? And they looked at Belgium's conflict of law rules. And under those rules, Belgium would say, well, look, ownership of marital property is not governed by the original marital domicile. It's governed by the common nationality of the spouses, which in this case was the United Kingdom. So we would look to the laws of the United Kingdom regarding who owns what, and the United Kingdom does not have Belgium pro uh, community property the way Belgium does. So England would say, this is separate property of the husband because it's titled in his name and therefore he owns it. And that lets the US say, he owns it, he died, he has to pay the estate tax. His estate has to pay the estate tax on the val value of all of those shares. All now, right. the sad thing is, under England's conflict of law rules, it seems to me from reading the case that this couple could have taken steps to formally change their marital rights from governance by the UK to governance under Belgian law. They could have done that had they been aware of this problem, had they seen a solicitor and so forth and so on. Sadly, of course, none of that happened. Yeah, now this this is really, really interesting. Okay, now on your, I mean, there's so many interesting aspects to this. I think that listeners should note, I mean, we always talk about citizenship taxation. Okay, by, by looking to the law of the nationality of the couples, this is actually a form of citizenship taxation, isn't it? I guess it is, yes. <laughs> You know, it's fascinating, right? It's actually indirect uh, citizenship taxation. That's the first point. Now, the second point is actually very interesting when you say that under the UK law, they could, under the UK law, have taken steps to ensure that the property was owned uh, uh, under the community property regime. Agreed? It, that's how I read it. Yes, they could have done that. Okay, that's your understanding of it. Now, I think that's a very important point because there are a number of community property jurisdictions that actually make special provisions uh, to, for example, convert community property to separate property by agreement or vice versa. And what I'm understanding you to be saying is that, well, your understanding was that, that British law allowed for them to do that, but they didn't do it. Right. 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 Amazing stuff here. And then, you know, I think the final, you know, another question on this is, I mean, you know, why is this a problem? And I think the answer is because, uh, you know, those, those shares are registered somewhere and there's going to be no way to get the money out without the IRS being paid. Right. 
Absolutely. In order to to get the Citigroup to release the stocks um, or whatever brokerage account they may have been in, typically um, the custodian of those shares will say, listen, we are a U.S. entity. We want to make sure that we are not going to be in trouble with the IRS. So we want to make sure before we release the assets that all the relevant estate tax has been paid. And therefore, we want you to give us something called the federal transfer certificate. Right. To prove that there is no underlying U.S. estate tax liability with regard to these shares that remains unpaid. Because once they release those assets, they can be held liable if there is an unpaid estate tax. Right. Well, the, the transfer certificate is really just operates as an acknowledgement that there's no IRS lien on that stuff. So so let's go back to your title here, which, you know, I think really, really sums it up. Right. So your title to the perfect storm, U.S. tax, community property and the mobile international couple. And if we look at this, I mean, my God, I mean, the U.S. tax system is, of course, you know, a trap for, for so many people. Right. Two, community property. Uh, I mean, you know, this can be an advantage to somebody or a huge disadvantage. And it's interesting that the, you know, the difference may be whether it's in life or whether it's on death, etc. So this needs to be examined. And the mobile international couple, well, you know, I suppose it's the mobility aspect of this that creates the conflict of law problems, right? That's right. I mean, John, once someone has been in a community property jurisdiction, they have issues. They, If they move, they need to check, well, what, what does this mean? Does the community property regime follow me, even though I have moved away from that country? Some, some places, indeed, they do. And if they do, maybe there's a way to get out of it. Maybe the, the, the laws of that country say, well, you know, if you are leaving, you can exit the community property regime if you file certain papers, et cetera, et cetera, and file them with the court. So people have to be aware. And once they are aware that these problems are out there, they can get the proper advice and, and make sure that their situation is, is clear. Right, right. Very, very interesting. Now, just to bring this to a close for today, uh, this whole issue of community property uh, does have, to bring it back to renunciation, does have issues with respect to valuation for an 8854, doesn't it? Of course, of course. We need to know who owns what. Does and, the husband and wife own half each? What What's the situation here? Right. So in a community property jurisdiction, the rule would be the husband and wife each own half. And... Uh, you know, if you if you want if you want a different result, you've got to take steps to change that before you expatriate, right? That's right. Okay. Well, uh, I think enough complexity for the day. Um, you know, this is a very very interesting post, and the number of issues that it raises is absolutely incredible. Uh, you know, it's very rare in my life that I read something that almost is an advertisement for lawyers. Uh, but this does strike me as an advertisement for lawyers. Would you agree? Well, um, 
in a way, I mean, it is because, but not in, a, not in a self-serving way. It's an advertisement to let people know, my gosh, you can't do anything without getting proper advice. No, I think that's absolutely what I mean your post is advertising you as a lawyer. I mean, the fact situation advertises the need for competent legal advice is my point, right? Absolutely. And, and uh, the sad thing, John, the sad thing I fear is that so many advisors and professionals are just unaware of the complexity that is involved in many of the cases or sadly, people don't get the full advice that they need. Right. Well, you know what? In closing, I certainly would advertise you as a lawyer, Virginia. Uh, I, oh, think thanks, I think this is a wonderful post. And um, where would people uh, read your, your blog in general? Right. They should go to www.us-tax.org, O-R-G. And this particular post will be right up there when they get to the when they get to the website. And they should check out the blog post category page because community property is one of the categories I have listed on the um, on the blog. So there's a number of of posts under that category. And this one in particular is about the estate of uh, Charnia. Charnia. Correct. All right. Well, great stuff. Great stuff. Uh, thank you for this uh, discussion today. And I look forward to picking this up with you as always. Thanks, Virginia. You're welcome, John. Take care.